Chapter 12, Part 1 of The Kingdom of God is Within You. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by David Shep. The Kingdom of God is Within You by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Constance Garnett. Chapter 12, Part 1. Conclusion Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Number 1. Chance meeting with the train-carrying soldiers to restore order among the famishing peasants. Reason of the expedition? How the decisions of the higher authorities are enforced in cases of insubordination on part of the peasants. What happened at Oriel, as an example of how the rights of the proprieted classes are maintained by murder and torture. All the privileges of the wealthy are based on similar acts of violence. Number 2. The elements that made up the force sent to Tula, and the conduct of the men composing it. How these men could carry out such acts, the explanation is not to be found in ignorance, conviction, cruelty, heartlessness, or want of moral sense. They do these things because they are necessary to support the existing order, which they consider it every man's duty to support. The basis of this conviction, that the existing order is necessary and inevitable, in the upper classes this conviction is based on the advantages of the existing order for themselves, but what forces men of the lower classes to believe in the immutability of the existing order from which they derive no advantage, and which they aid in maintaining, facts contrary to their conscience. This is the result of the lower classes being deluded by the upper, both as to the inevitability of the existing order and the lawfulness of the acts of violence needed to maintain it. Deception in general, special form of deception in regard to military service, conscription. Number 3. How can men allow that murder is permissible while they preach principles of morality, and how can they allow the existence in their midst of a military organization of physical force which is a constant menace to public security? It is only allowed by the upper classes who profit by this organization, because their privileges are maintained by it. The upper classes allow it, and the lower classes carry it into effect in spite of their consciousness of the immorality of the deeds of violence. The more readily, because through the arrangements of the government, the moral responsibility for such deeds is divided among a great number of participants, and everyone throws the responsibility on someone else. Moreover, the sense of moral responsibility is lost through the delusion of inequality and the consequent intoxication of power on the part of superiors, and servility on the part of inferiors. The condition of these men, acting against the dictates of their conscience, is like that of hypnotized subjects acting by suggestion. The difference between this obedience to government suggestion and obedience to public opinion and to the guidance of men of higher moral sense, the existing order of society which is the result of an extinct public opinion and is inconsistent with the already existing public opinion of the future, is only maintained by the stupefaction of the conscience. Produced spontaneously by self-interest in the upper classes and through hypnotizing in the lower classes. The conscience, or the common sense of such men, may awaken, and there are examples of its sudden awakening, so that one can never be sure of the deeds of violence they are prepared for. It depends entirely on the point which the sense of the unlawfulness of the acts of violence has reached, and this sense may spontaneously awaken in men.
or may be reawakened in the influence of men of more conscience. Number four. Everything depends on the strength of the consciousness of Christian truths in each individual man. The leading men of modern times, however, do not think it necessary to preach or practice the truths of Christianity, but regard the modification of the external conditions of existence within the limit imposed by governments as sufficient to reform the life of humanity. On this scientific theory of hypocrisy, which has replaced the hypocrisy of religion, men of the wealthy classes base their justification of their position. Through this hypocrisy, they can enjoy the exclusive privileges of their position by force and fraud, and still pretend to be Christians to one another and be easy in their minds. This hypocrisy allows men who preach Christianity to take part in institutions based on violence. No external reformation of life will render it less miserable. Its misery, the result of disunion caused by following lies, not the truth, union only possible in truth. Hypocrisy hinders this union, since hypocrites conceal from themselves and others the truth they know. Hypocrisy turns all reforms of life to evil. Hypocrisy distorts the idea of good and evil, and so stands in the way of the progress of men toward perfection. Undisguised criminals and malefactors do less harm than those who live by legalized violence, disguised by hypocrisy. All men feel the inequality of our life and would long ago have transformed it if it had not been dissimulated by hypocrisy, but seem to have reached the extreme limits of hypocrisy, and we need only make an effort of conscience to awaken as from a nightmare to a different reality. Number 5. Can man make this effort? According to the hypocritical theory of the day, Man is not free to transform his life. Man is not free in his actions, but he is free to admit or to deny the truth he knows. When truth is once admitted, it becomes the basis of action. Men's threefold relation to truth. The reason of the apparent insolubility of the problem of free will. Man's freedom consists in the recognition of the truth revealed to him. There is no other freedom. Recognition of truth gives freedom and shows the path along which, willingly or unwillingly by mankind, man must advance. The recognition of truth and real freedom enables man to share in the work of God, not as the slave, but as the creator of life. Men need only make the effort to renounce all thought of bettering the external conditions of life and bend all their efforts to recognizing and preaching the truth they know, to put an end to the existing miserable state of things, and to enter upon the kingdom of God so far as it is yet accessible to man. All that is needed is to make an end of lying and hypocrisy. But then, what awaits us in the future? What will happen to humanity if men follow the dictates of their conscience? And how can life go on with the conditions of civilized life to which we are accustomed? All uneasiness on these points may be removed by the reflection that nothing true and good can be destroyed by the realization of truth, but will only be freed from the alloy of falsehood. Number 6. Our life has reached the extreme limit of misery and cannot be improved by any systems of organization. All our life and all our institutions are quite meaningless. Are we doing what God wills of us by preserving our privileges and duties to government? 
we are put in this position not because the world is so made, and it is inevitable, but because we wish it to be so. Because it is to the advantage of some of us, our conscience is in opposition to our position and all our conduct, and the way out of the contradiction is to be found in the recognition of the Christian truth. Do not unto others what you would not they should do unto you. As our duties to self must be subordinated to our duties to others, so must our duties to others be subordinated to our duties to God. The only way out of our position lies, if not in the renouncing of our position and our privileges, at least in recognizing our sin and not justifying it or disguising it. The only object of life is to learn the truth and to act on it. Acceptance of the position and of state action deprives life of all object. It is God's will that we should serve Him in our life. That is, that we should bring about the greatest unity of all that has life. A unity only possible in truth. I was finishing this book, which I had been working at for two years, when I happened on the 9th of September to be traveling by rail through the governments of Tula and Rizan, where the peasants were starving last year and where the famine is even more severe now. At one of the railway stations, my train passed an extra train, which was taking a troop of soldiers under the conduct of the governor of the province, together with muskets, cartridges, and rods, to flog and murder these same famishing peasants. The punishment of flogging, by way of carrying the decree of the authorities into effect, has been more and more frequently adopted of late in Russia, in spite of the fact that corporal punishment was abolished by law thirty years ago. I had heard of this. I had even read in the newspapers of the fearful floggings which had been inflicted in Tchernov, Tembov, Saratov, Astrakhan, and Oriel, and of those which the governor of Ninji Neverod, General Barnov, had boasted. But I had never before happened to see men in the process of carrying out these punishments. And here I saw the spectacle of good Russians, full of the Christian spirit, traveling with guns and rods to torture and kill their starving brethren. The reason for their expedition was as follows. On one of the estates of a rich landowner, the peasants had common rights on the forest, and, having always enjoyed these rights, regarded the forest as their own, or at least as theirs in common with the owner. The landowner wished to keep the forest entirely to himself and began to fell the trees. The peasants lodged a complaint. The judges in the first instance gave an unjust decision. I say unjust on the authority of the lawyer and governor who ought to understand the matter, and decided the case in favor of the landowner. All the latter decisions, even that of the Senate, though they could see that the matter had been unjustly decided, confirmed the judgment and adjudicated the forest to the landowner. He began to cut down the trees. But the peasants, unable to believe that such obvious injustice could be done them by the higher authorities, did not submit to the decision and drove away the men sent to cut down the trees, declaring that the forest belonged to them and they would go to the Tsar before they would let them cut it down. The matter was referred to Petersburg, and the order was transmitted to the governor to carry the decision of the court into effect. The governor asked for a troop of soldiers, and here were the soldiers with bayonets and cartridges, and moreover, a supply of rods, expressly prepared for the purpose and heaped up in one of the trucks going to carry the decision of the higher authorities into effect. 
the decisions of the higher authorities are carried into effect by means of murder or torture, or threats of one or the other, according to whether they offer resistance or not. In the first case, if the peasants offer resistance, the practice is in Russia, and it is the same everywhere where a state organization and private property exist, as follows. The governor delivers an address in which he demands submission. The excited crowd, generally deluded by their leaders, don't understand a word of what the representative of authority is saying in the pompous official language, and their excitement continues. Then the governor announces that if they do not submit and disperse, he will be obliged to have recourse to force. If the crowd does not disperse even on this, the governor gives the order to fire over the heads of the crowd. If the crowd does not even then disperse, the governor gives the order to fire straight into the crowd. The soldiers fire, and the killed and wounded fall about the street. Then the crowd usually runs away in all directions, and the troops at the governor's command take those who are supposed to be the ringleaders and lead them off under escort. Then they pick up the dying, the wounded, and the dead, covered with blood, sometimes women and children among them. The dead they bury, and the wounded they carry to the hospital. Those whom they regard as their ringleaders, they take to the town hall and have them tried by a special court-martial, and if they have had recourse to violence on their side, they are condemned to be hanged, and then the gallow is erected, and they solemnly strangle a few defenseless creatures. This is what has often been done in Russia, and is, and must always be done, where the social order is based on force. But in the second case, when the peasants do submit, something quite special, peculiar to Russia, takes place. The governor arrives on the scene of action and delivers a harangue to the people, reproaching them from their insubordination, and either stations troops in the houses of the villages where sometimes, for a whole month, the soldiers drain the resources of the peasants, or, contending himself with threats, he mercifully takes leave of the people. Or, what is the most frequent course, he announces that the ringleaders must be punished and quite arbitrarily, without any trial, selects a certain number of men, regarded as ringleaders, and commands them to be flogged in his presence. In order to give an idea of how such things are done, I will describe a proceeding of the kind which took place in Oriel and received the full approval of the highest authorities. This is what took place in Oriel. Just as here in the Tula province, a landlord wanted to appropriate the property of the peasants, and, just in the same way, the peasants opposed it. The matter in dispute was a fall of water which irrigated the peasants' fields, and which the landowner wanted to cut off and divert to turn his mill. The peasants rebelled against this being done. The landowner laid a complaint before the district commander, who, illegally, as was recognized later even by a legal decision, decided the matter in favor of the landowner and allowed him to divert the water course. The landowner sent workmen to dig the conduit by which the water was to be let off to turn the mill. The peasants were indignant at this unjust decision, and sent their women to prevent the landowner's men from digging this conduit. The women went to the dikes, overturned the carts, and drove away the men. The landowner made a complaint against the women for thus taking the law into their own hands, the district commander made out an order that from every house throughout the village one woman was to be taken and put in prison. 
the order was not easily executed, for in every household there were several women, and it was impossible to know which one was to be arrested. Consequently, the police did not carry out the order. The landowner complained to the governor of the neglect on the part of the police, and the latter, without examining into the affair, gave the chief official of the police strict orders to carry out the instructions of the district commander without delay. The police official, in obedience to his superior, went to the village and, with the insolence particular to Russian officials, ordered his policemen to take one woman out of each house. But since there were more than one woman in each house, and there was no knowing which one was sentenced to imprisonment, disputes and opposition arose. In spite of these disputes and opposition, however, the officer of police gave orders that some woman, whichever came first, should be taken from each household and led away to prison. The peasants began to defend their wives and mothers, would not let them go, and beat the police and their officer. This was a fresh and terrible crime. Resistance was offered to the authorities. A report of this new offense was sent to the town, and so this governor, precisely as the governor of Tula was doing on that day, with a battalion of soldiers with his guns and rods hastily brought together by means of telegraphs and telephones and railways, proceeded by a special train to the scene of action. With the learned doctor, whose duty it was to ensure the flogging being of an hygienic character, Herzen's prophecy of the modern Genghis Khan with his telegrams is completely realized by this governor. Before the town hall of the district were the solidary, a battalion of police with their revolvers strung round them with red cords, the persons of most importance among the peasants and the culprits. A crowd of one thousand or more people were standing round. The governor, on arriving, stepped out of his carriage, delivered a prepared harangue, and asked for the culprits and a bench. The latter demand was at first not understood, but a police constable whom the governor always took about with him, and who undertook to organize such executions, by no means exceptional in that province, explained that what was meant was a bench for flogging. A bench was brought, as well as the rods, and then executioners were summoned. The latter had been selected beforehand from some horse-dealers of the same village, as the soldiers refused the office. When everything was ready, the governor ordered the first of the twelve culprits pointed out by the landowner as the most guilty to come forward. The first to come forward was the head of a family, a man of forty who had always stood up manfully for the rights of his class, and therefore was held in the greatest esteem by all the villagers. He was led to the bench and stripped, and then ordered to lie down. The peasant attempted to supplicate for mercy, but seeing it was useless, he crossed himself and lay down. Two police constables hastened to hold him down. The learned doctor stood by in readiness to give his aid and his medical science when they should be needed. The convicts spit into their hands, brandished the rods, and began to flog. It seemed, however, that the bench was too narrow, and it was difficult to keep the victim writhing in torture upon it. Then the governor ordered them to bring another bench and to put the plank across them. Soldiers, with their hands raised to their caps and respectful, yes, your excellency, hastened obediently to carry out this order. Meanwhile, the tortured man, half naked, pale and scowling, stood waiting, his eyes fixed on the ground and his teeth chattering. When another bench had been brought, they again made him lie down, and the convicted thieves again began to flog him. 
The victim's back and thighs and legs and even his sides became more and more covered with scars and wails. And at every blow there came the sound of the deep groans which he could no longer restrain. In the crowd standing round were heard the sobs of wives, mothers, children, and the families of the tortured man, and of all the others picked out for punishment. The miserable governor, intoxicated with power, was counting the strokes on his fingers, and never left off smoking cigarettes, while several officious persons hastened on every opportunity to offer him a burning match to light them. When more than fifty strokes had been given, the peasant ceased to shriek and writhe, and the doctor, who had been educated in a government institution to serve his sovereign and his country with his scientific attainments, went up to the victim, felt his pulse, listened to his heart, and announced to the representative of authority that the man undergoing punishment had lost consciousness, and that, in accordance with the conclusions of science, to continue the punishment would endanger the victim's life. But the miserable governor, now completely intoxicated by the sight of blood, gave orders that the punishment should go on, and the flogging was continued up to seventy strokes, the number which the governor had for some reason fixed upon as necessary. When the seventieth stroke had been reached, the governor said, Enough! Next one! And the mutilated victim, his back covered with blood, was lifted up and carried away unconscious, and another was led up. The sobs and groans of the crowd grew louder, but the representative of the state continued the torture. Thus they flogged each of them up to the twelfth, and each of them received seventy strokes. They all implored mercy, shrieked, and groaned. The sobs and cries of the crowd of women grew louder and more heart-rending, and the men's faces grew darker and darker. But they were surrounded by troops and the torture did not cease till it had reached the limit which had been fixed by the caprice of the miserable, half-drunken, and insane creature they called the governor. The officials and officers and soldiers not only assisted in it, but were even partly responsible for the affair, since by their presence they prevented any interference on the part of the crowd. When I inquired of one of the governors why they made use of this kind of torture when people had already submitted and soldiers were stationed in the village, he replied with the important air of a man who thoroughly understands all the subtleties of statecraft, that if the peasants were not thoroughly subdued by flogging, they would begin offering opposition to the decisions of authorities again. When some of them had been thoroughly tortured, the authority of the state would be secured forever among them. And so, that was why the governor of Tula was going in his turn with the subordinate officials, officers, and soldiers to carry out a similar measure, by precisely the same means, i.e., by murder and torture. Obedience to the decision of higher authorities was to be secured, and this decision was to enable a young landowner who had an income of 100,000 to gain 3,000 rubles more by stealing a forest from a whole community of cold and famished peasants, to spend it in two or three weeks in the saloons of Moscow, Petersburg, or Paris. That was what those people whom I met were going to do. After my thoughts for two years had been turned in this same direction, 
fate seemed expressly to have brought me face to face for the first time in my life with a fact which showed me absolutely unmistakably in practice what had long been clear to me in theory that the organization of our society rests not in people interested in maintaining the present order of things like to imagine on certain principles of jurisprudence but on simple brute force on the murder and torture of men people who own great estates or fortunes or who receive great revenues drawn from the classes who are in want even of necessities the working class as well as all those who like merchants doctors artists clerks learned professors coachmen cooks writers valets and baristas make their living about these rich people like to believe that the privileges they enjoy are not the result of force but of absolutely free and just interchange of services and that their advantages far from being gained by such punishments and murders as took place in oriel and several parts of russia this year and are always taking place all over europe and america have no kind of connection with these acts of violence they like to believe that their privileges exist apart and are the result of free contract among people and that the violent cruelties perpetrated on the people also exist apart and are the result of some general judicial political or economical laws they try not to see that they all enjoy their privileges as a result of the same fact which forces the peasants who have tended the forest and who are in the direct need of it for fuel to give it up to a rich landowner who has taken no part in caring for its growth and has no need of it whatsoever the fact is that if they don't give it up they will be flogged or killed and yet if it is clear that it was only by means of menaces blows or murder that the mill in oriel was enabled to yield a larger income or that the forest which the peasants had planted became the property of a landowner, it should be equally clear that all the other exclusive rights enjoyed by the rich, by robbing the poor of their necessities, rest on the same basis of violence. If the peasants, who need land to maintain their families, may not cultivate the land about their houses, but one man, a Russian, english australian or any other great landowner possesses land enough to maintain a thousand families though he does not cultivate it himself and if a merchant profiting by the misery of the cultivators taking corn from them at a third of its value can keep his corn in his granaries with perfect security while men are starving all around him and sell it again for three times its value to the very cultivators he bought it from it is evident that all this too comes from the same cause and if one man may not buy of another a commodity from the other side of the certain fixed line called the frontier without paying certain duties on it to men who have taken no part whatsoever in its production and if men are driven to sell their last cow to pay taxes which the government distributes among its functionaries and spends on maintaining soldiers to murder these very taxpayers it would appear self-evident that all this does not come about as the result of any abstract laws but is based on just what was done in oriel and which may be done in tula and is done periodically in one form or another throughout the whole world wherever there is a government and where there are rich and poor 
simply because torture and murder are not employed in every instance of oppression by force, those who enjoy the exclusive privileges of the ruling classes persuade themselves and others that their privileges are not based on torture and murder, but on some mysterious general causes, abstract laws, and so on. Yet, one would think it was perfectly clear that if men who consider it unjust, and all the working classes do consider it so nowadays, still pay the principal part of their produce of their labor away to the capitalist and the landowner, and pay taxes, though they know to what a bad use these taxes are put. They do so not from recognition of abstract laws of which they have never heard, but only because they know they will be beaten and killed if they don't do so. And if there is no need to imprison, beat, and kill men every time the landlord collects his rent, every time those who are in want of bread have to pay a swindling merchant three times its value, every time the factory hand has to be content with a wage less than half of the profit made by the employer, and every time a poor man pays his last ruble in taxes, it is because so many men have been beaten and killed for trying to resist these demands that the lesson has now been learnt very thoroughly. Just as a trained tiger who does not eat meat put under his nose and jumps over a stick at the word of command does not act thus because he likes it, but because he remembers the red-hot irons or the fast with which he was punished every time he did not obey. So men submitting to what is disadvantageous or even ruinous to them are considered by them as unjust act thus because they remember what they suffered for resisting it. As for those who profit by the privilege gained by previous acts of violence, they often forget and like to forget how those privileges were obtained. But one needs only recall the facts of history, not the history of the exploits of different dynasties of rulers, but real history, the history of the oppression of the majority by a small number of men, to see that all the advantages the rich have over the poor are based on nothing but flogging, imprisonment, and murder. One need but reflect on the unceasing, persistent struggle of all to better their material position, which is the guiding motive of men of the present day. To be convinced that the advantages of the rich over the poor could never and can never be maintained by anything but force. There may be cases of oppression, of violence, and of punishments, though they are rare, the aim of which is not to secure the privileges of the proprietor class. But one may confidently assert that in any society where for every man living in ease there are ten exhausted by labor, envious, covetous, and often suffering with their families from direct privation, all the privileges of the rich, all their luxuries and superfluities are obtained and maintained only by torturers, imprisonment, and murder. The train I met on the 9th of September going with soldiers, guns, cartridges, and rods to confirm the rich landowner in the possession of a small forest which he had taken from the starving peasants, which they were in the direst need of, and he was in no need of at all, was a striking proof of how men are capable of doing deeds directly opposed to their principles and their conscience without perceiving it. The special train consisted of one first-class carriage for the governor, 
the officials and the officers, and several luggage vans crammed full of soldiers. The latter, smart young fellows in their clean new uniforms, were standing about in groups or sitting swinging their legs in the wide-open doorways of the luggage vans. Some were smoking, nudging each other, joking, grinning, and laughing. Others were munching sunflower seeds and spitting out the husks of their dignity. Some of them ran along the platform to drink some water from a tub there, and when they met the officers they slackened their pace, made their stupid gesture of salutation, raising their hands to their heads with serious faces as though they were doing something of the greatest importance. They kept their eyes on them till they had passed by them, and then set off running still more merrily, stamping their heels on the platform, laughing and chattering after the manner of healthy, good-natured young fellows traveling in lively company. They were going to assist at the murder of their fathers or grandfathers, just as if they were going on a party of pleasure, or at any rate on some quiet, ordinary business. The same impression was produced by the well-dressed functionaries and officers who were scattered about the platform and in the first-class carriage. At a table covered with bottles, was sitting the governor who was responsible for the whole expedition, dressed in his half-military uniform and eating something while he chatted tranquilly about the weather with some acquaintances he had met, as though the business he was upon was of so simple and ordinary a character that it could not disturb his serenity and his interest in the change of weather. At a little distance from the table sat the general of the police. He was not taking any refreshment and had an impenetrable bored expression, as though he were weary of the formalities to be gone through. On all sides, officers were bustling noisily about in their red uniforms trimmed with gold. One sat at a table finishing his bottle of beer. Another stood at the buffet eating a cake and brushing the crumbs off his uniform, threw down his money with a self-confident air. Another was sauntering before the carriages of our train, staring at the faces of the women. All these men who were going to murder or to torture the famishing and defenseless creatures who provide them their sustenance had the air of men who knew very well that they were doing their duty. And some were even proud, were glorying in what they were doing. What is the meaning of it? All these people are within a half an hour of reaching a place where, in order to provide a wealthy young man with three thousand rubles stolen from a whole community of famishing peasants, they may be forced to commit the most horrible acts one can conceive, to murder or torture, as was done in Oriel, innocent beings, their brothers and they see the place and time approaching with untroubled serenity. To say that all these government officials, officers, and soldiers do not know what is before them is impossible, for they are prepared for it. The governor must have given directions about the rods. The officials must have sent an order for them, purchased them, and entered the item in their accounts. The military officers have given and received orders about cartridges. They all know what they are going to torture, perhaps to kill, their famishing fellow creatures, and that they must set to work within an hour. To say, as is usually said, and as they would themselves repeat, that they are acting from conviction of the necessity for supporting the state organization would be a mistake. For in the first place, 
these men have probably never even thought about state organization and the necessity of it in the second place they cannot possibly be convinced that the act in which they are taking part will tend to support rather than to ruin the state and thirdly in reality the majority if not all of these men far from ever sacrificing their own pleasure or tranquillity to support the state never let slip an opportunity of profiting at the expense of the state in every way they can increase their own pleasure and ease so that they are not acting thus for the sake of the abstract principle of the state what is the meaning of it yet i know all these men if i don't know all of them personally i know their characters pretty nearly their past and their way of thinking. They certainly all have mothers, some of them wives and children. They are certainly, for the most part, good, kind, even tender-hearted fellows, who hate every sort of cruelty, not to speak of murder. Many of them would not kill or hurt an animal. Moreover, they are all professed Christians, and regard all violence directed against the defenseless as base and disgraceful. Certainly not one of them would be capable of everyday life for his own personal profit, of doing a hundredth part of what the governor of Oriel did. Every one of them would be insulted at the supposition that he was capable of doing anything of the kind in private life, and yet they are within a half an hour of reaching the place where they may be reduced to the inevitable necessity of committing this crime. What is the meaning of it? But it is not only these men who are going to train prepared for murder and torture. How could the men who began the whole business, the landowner, the commissioner, the judges, and those who gave the order and are responsible for it, the ministers, the czar, who are also good men, professed Christians, how could they elaborate such a plan and assent to it, knowing its consequences? the spectators even who took no part in the affair how could they who are indignant at the sight of any cruelty in private life even the overtaxing of a horse allow such a horrible deed to be perpetrated how was it they did not rise in indignation and bar the roads shouting no flog and kill starving men because they won't let their last possession be stolen from them without resistance that we won't allow but far from anyone doing this the majority even of those who were the cause of the affair such as the commissioner the landowner the judge and those who took part in it and arranged it as the governor the ministers and the czar are perfectly tranquil and do not even feel a prick of conscience and apparently all the men who are going to carry out this crime are equally undisturbed. The spectators, who one would suppose could have no personal interest in the affair, looked rather with sympathy than with disapproval at all these people preparing to carry out this infamous action. In the same compartment with me was a wood merchant who had risen from a peasant. He openly expressed aloud his sympathy with such punishments. They can't disobey the authorities, he said. That's what the authorities are for. Let them have a lesson. Send their fleas flying. They'll give over making commotions, I warrant you. That's what they want. 
What is the meaning of it? It is not possible to say that all these people who have provoked or aided or allowed this deed are such worthless creatures that, knowing all the infamy of what they are doing, they do it against their principles, some for pay and for profit, others through fear of punishment. All of them in certain circumstances know how to stand up for their principles. Not one of these officials will purse, read another man's letter, or put up with an affront without demanding satisfaction. Not one of these officers would consent to cheat at cards, would refuse to pay a debt of honor, would betray a comrade, run away on a field of battle, or desert the flag. Not one of these soldiers would spit out the holy sacrament or eat meat on Good Friday. All these men are ready to face any kind of privation, suffering, or danger, rather the consent to do what they regard as wrong. They have therefore the strength to resist doing what is against their principles. It is even less possible to assert that all these men are such brutes that it is natural and not distasteful to them to do such deeds. One need only talk to those people a little to see that all of them, the landowner even, and the judge, and the minister, and the czar, and the government, the officers, and the soldiers, not only disapprove of such things in the depth of their soul, but suffer from the consciousness of their participation in them when they recollect what they imply. But they try not to think about it. One need only talk to any of these who are taking part in the affair from the landowner to the lowest policeman or soldier to see that in the depths of their soul they all know it is a wicked thing, that it would be better to have nothing to do with it, and are suffering from the knowledge. A lady of liberal views, who was traveling in the same train with us, seeing the governor and the officers in the first-class saloon, and learning the object of the expedition, began intentionally raising her voice so that they should hear, to abuse the existing order of things and to cry shame on men who would take part in such proceedings. Everyone felt awkward. No one knew where to look, but no one contradicted her. They tried to look as though such remarks were not worth answering, but one could see by their faces and their averted eyes that they were ashamed. I noticed the same thing in the soldiers. They too knew that what they were sent to do was a shameful thing, but they did not want to think about what was before them. When the wood merchant, as I suspect insincerely only to show that he was a man of education, began to speak of the necessity of such measures, the soldiers who heard him all turned away from him, scowling and pretending not to hear. All the men who, like the landowner, the commissioner, the minister, and the czar, were responsible for the perpetration of this act, as well as those who were now going to execute it, and even those who were mere spectators of it, knew that it was a wickedness, and were ashamed of taking any share in it, and even of being present at it. Then why did they do it, or allow it to be done? Ask them the question. And the landowner who started the affair, and the judge who pronounced a clearly unjust, even though formally legal, decision, and those who commanded the execution of the decision, and those who, like the policemen, soldiers, and peasants, will execute the deed with their own hands, flogging and killing their brothers, all who have devised, abetted, decreed, executed, or allowed such crimes, 
will make substantially the same reply. The authorities, those who have started, devised, and decreed the matter, will say that such acts are necessary for the maintenance of the existing order. The maintenance of the existing order is necessary for the welfare of the country and of humanity, for the possibility of social existence and human progress. Men of the poorer classes, peasants and soldiers, who will have to execute the deed of violence with their own hands, say that they do so because it is the command of their superior authority, and the superior authority knows what he is about. That those are in authority who ought to be in authority, and that they know what they are doing, appears to them a truth of which there can be no doubt. If they could admit the possibility of mistake or error, it would only be a functionaries of a lower grade. The highest authority on which all the rest depends seemed to them immaculate beyond suspicion. Though expressing the motives of their conduct differently, both those in command and their subordinates are agreed in saying that they act thus because the existing order is the order which must and ought to exist at the present time, and that therefore to support it is the sacred duty of every man. Only this acceptance of the necessity and therefore immutability of the existing order, all who take part in acts of violence on the part of the government base the argument always advanced in their justification. Since the existing order is immutable, they say, the refusal of a single individual to perform the duties laid upon him will effect no change in things, and will only mean that some other man will be put in his place who may do the work worse, that is to say more cruelly, to the still greater injury of the victims of the act of violence." This conviction that the existing order is the necessary and therefore immutable order, which it is a sacred duty for every man to support, enables good men of high principles in private life to take part with conscience, more or less untroubled in crimes, such as that perpetrated in Oriel, and that which the men in the Tula train were going to perpetrate. But what is this conviction based on? It is easy to understand that the landowner prefers to believe that the existing order is inevitable and immutable, because this existing order secures him an income from his hundreds and thousands of acres, by means of which he can lead his habitual, indolent, and luxurious life. It is easy to understand that the judge readily believes in the necessity of an order of things, through which he receives a wage fifty times as great as the most industrious laborer can earn and the same applies to all the higher officials. It is only under the existing regime that as governor, prosecutor, senator, members of the various councils, they can receive their several thousands of rubles a year, without which they and their families would once sink into ruin. Since if it were not for the position they occupy, they would never, by their own abilities, industry, or acquirements, get a thousandth. Part of their salaries. The minister, the czar, and all the higher authorities are in the same position. The only distinction is that the higher and the more exceptional their position, the more necessity it is for them to believe that the existing order is the only possible order of things. For without it they would not only be unable to gain an equal position, but would be found to fall lower than all other people. A man who has 
of his own free will entered the police force at a wage of ten rubles, which he could easily earn in any other position, is hardly dependent on the preservation of the existing regime, and so he may not believe in its immutability. But a king or an emperor who receives millions for his post, and knows that there are thousands of people around him who would like to dethrone him and take his place, who knows that he will never receive such a revenue or so much honor in any other position, who knows in most cases through his more or less despotic rule that if he were dethroned he would have to answer the abuse of power. He cannot but believe in the necessity and even sacredness of the existing order. The higher and the more profitable a man's position, the more unstable it becomes, and the more terrible and dangerous a fall from it for him. The more firmly the man believes in the existing order, and therefore, with the more ease of conscience, can such a man perpetrate cruel and wicked acts, as though they were not in his own interest, but for the maintenance of that order. This is the case with all men in authority who occupy positions more profitable than they could occupy except for the present regime, from the lowest police officer to the czar. All of them are more or less convinced that the existing order is immutable, because the chief consideration it is to their own advantage. But the peasants, the soldiers who are at the bottom of the social scale, who have no kind of advantage from the existing order, who are in the very lowest position of subjugation and humiliation, what forces them to believe that the existing order in which they are in their humble and disadvantageous position is the order which ought to exist, and which they ought to support even at the cost of evil actions contrary to their conscience? What forces these men to the false reasoning that the existing order is unchanging and that therefore they ought to support it when it is so obvious, on the contrary, that it is only unchanging because they themselves support it. What forces these peasants, taken only yesterday from the plough and dressed in ugly and unseemly costumes with blue collars and gilt buttons, to go with guns and sabres and murder their famishing fathers and brothers? They gain advantage and can be in no fear of losing the position they occupy because it is worse than that from which they have been taken. The persons in authority of the higher orders, landowners, merchants, judges, senators, governors, ministers, czars, and officers, take part in such doings because the existing order is to their advantage. In other respects, they are often good and kind-hearted men, and they are more able to take part in such doings because their share in them is limited to suggestions, decisions, and orders. These persons in authority never do themselves what they suggest, decide, or command to be done. For the most part, they do not even see how all the atrocious deeds they have suggested and authorized are carried out. But the unfortunate men of the lower orders, who gain no kind of advantage from the existing regime, but, on the contrary, are treated with the utmost contempt, support it, even by dragging people with their own hands from their families, handcuffing them, throwing them in prison, guarding them, shooting them. Why do they do it? What forces them to believe that the existing order is unchanging and they must support it? 
All violence rests, we know, on those who do the beating, the handcuffing, the imprisoning, and the killing with their own hands. If there were no soldiers or armed policemen ready to kill or outrage anyone as they are ordered, not one of those people who sign sentences of death, imprisonment, or galley slavery for life would make up his mind to hang in prison or torture a thousandth part of those whom, quietly sitting in his study, he now orders to be tortured in all kinds of ways, simply because he does not see it nor do it himself but only gets it done at a distance by these servile tools. All the acts of injustice and cruelty which are committed in the ordinary course of daily life have only become habitual because there are these men always ready to carry out such acts of injustice and cruelty. If it were not for them, far from anyone using violence against the immense masses who are now ill-treated, those who now command their punishment would not venture to sentence them, would not even dare to dream of the sentences they decree with such easy confidence at present. And if it were not for these men, ready to kill or torture anyone at their commander's will, no one would dare to claim, as all the idle landowners claim with such assurance, that a piece of land surrounded by peasants who are in wretchedness from want of land is the property of a man who does not cultivate it or that stores of corn taken by swindling from the peasants ought to remain untouched in the midst of a population dying of hunger because the merchants must make their profit. If it were not for these servile instruments at the disposal of the authorities, it could never have entered the head of the landowner to rob the peasants of the forest they had tended nor of the officials to think they are entitled to their salaries taken from the famishing people the price of their oppression. Least of all, could anyone dream of killing or exiling men for exposing falsehood and telling the truth. All this can only be done because the authorities are confidently assured that they have always these servile tools at hand, ready to carry out all their demands into effect by means of torture and murder. All the deeds of violence of tyrants from Napoleon to the lowest commander of a company who fires upon a crowd can only be explained by the intoxicating effect of their absolute power over these slaves. All force, therefore, rests on these men who carry out the deeds of violence with their own hands, the men who serve in the police or the army, especially the army, for the police only venture to do their work because the army is at their back. What, then? has brought these masses of honest men on whom the whole thing depends, who gain nothing by it, and who have to do these atrocious deeds with their own hands, what has brought them to accept the amazing delusion that the existing order, unprofitable, ruinous, and fatal, as it is for them, is the order which ought to exist? Who has led them into this amazing delusion? They can never have persuaded themselves that they ought to do what is against their conscience and also the source of misery and ruin for themselves and all their class who make up nine-tenths of the population. How can you kill people when it is written in God's commandment, Thou shalt not kill? I have often inquired of different soldiers, and I always drove them to embarrassment and confusion by reminding them of what they did not want to think about. They knew they were bound by the law of God. Thou shalt not kill. 
and knew, too, that they were bound by their duty as soldiers, but had never reflected on the contradiction between these duties. The drift of the timid answers I received to this question was always approximately this. The killing in war and executing criminals by command of the government are not included in the general prohibition of murder. But when I said this distinction was not made in the law of God, and, re and reminded them of the Christian duty of fraternity, forgiveness of injuries, and love, which could not be reconciled with murder, the peasants usually agreed, but in their turn began to ask me questions. How does it happen? they inquired, that the government, which, according to their ideas, cannot do wrong, sends the army to war and orders criminals to be executed. When I answered that the government does wrong in giving such orders, the peasants fell into still greater confusion, and either broke off their conversation or else got angry with me. They must have found a law for it. The archbishops know as much about it as we do. I should hope, a Russian soldier once observed to me, and in saying this the soldier obviously set his mind at rest, in the full conviction that his spiritual guides had found a law which authorized his ancestors and the czars and their descendants and millions of men to serve as he was doing himself, and that the question I had put him was a kind of hoax or conundrum on my part. Everyone in our Christian society knows, either by tradition or by revelation or by the voice of conscience, that murder is one of the most fearful crimes a man can commit, as the gospel tells us, and that the sin of murder cannot be limited to certain persons, that is, murder cannot be a sin for some and not a sin for others. Everyone knows that if murder is a sin, it is always a sin. Whoever are the victims murdered, just like the sin of adultery, theft, or any other. At the same time, from their childhood up, men see that murder is not only permitted, but even sanctioned by the blessings of those whom they are accustomed to regard as their divinely appointed spiritual guides, and see their secular leaders with calm assurance organizing murder, proud to wear murderous arms, and demanding of others in the name of the laws of the country, and even of God, that they should take part in murder. Men see that there is some inconsistency here, but not being able to analyze it, involuntarily assume that this apparent inconsistency is only the result of their ignorance. The very grossness and obviousness of the inconsistency confirms them in this conviction. End of chapter 12, part 1.